Welcome to The Last Supper, a weekly podcast about art in Asia featuring artists, gallerists and collectors. Hello, I'm Oscar Venhuis, a Dutch-Korean artist based on Lama Island in Hong Kong. In this episode, I have the pleasure to talk to Dr. Yankee Lee, who studied at the Royal College of Art in London and at the University of Hong Kong. She's an innovator, social activist, and expert in the research for social inclusion and participation. Dr. Yankee Lee is an international speaker, writer, and has published over 50 peer-reviewed papers and articles. Welcome, Yankee Lee. How are you doing? Actually, I should call you Dr. Yankee Lee. Oh, actually, uh, recently I've become a professor. But you can't actually use a professor as a title, which is, yeah, so really weird. Never mind. Whatever you want to call me. <laughs> you just showed me your new studio, which looks uh, pretty amazing. So where in London are you based? Uh, we're based in the city of London, which is the older part of London, uh, where the bomb have been very serious in World War II. So there's a lot of regeneration projects, but it's where London started. Um, so we've been based there, like near the Barbican Centre uh, for over 20 years' time. Uh, we live and work there. So we live in um, the Golden Link Estate, which is a, a council estate, but uh, a very great example of modern design and also key workers housing. And then we have a shop, used to have a shop there and then running our studio. So this was um, something called Exhibit at Golden Link Estate. So it's a design gallery company that we start um, 2005 with my partners in London. And that was something I would say is an experiment um, to really start. So he's a lighting designer and we both train in architecture. I remember meeting you in Hong Kong when you were based there. That's quite a few years ago. That was before 2019, I remember. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think the reason, because we were working in the same building and then we had a little chat and mm. I realized you um, went to the RCA, uh, me too, although I did a completely different department. And um, I was looking at your work and what, what really struck me instantly was actually your collaborative and sort of co-creative approach to, to projects, specifically in Hong Kong, which I thought was really unique. So before diving into your recent projects, I just want to explain why your work is so important to me. You seem to work in the white space of several different domains of art, design, and science between academic or evidence-based research and adjustment-based process. What fascinates me about your body of work is the amount of collaborative research and how you showcase and exhibit the outcomes. What I mean is that your outcomes are not necessarily solutions, but they offer a fresh perspective to the social issues you address. You describe this approach as action research. Do you mind to describe to me what this is? So action research I've been using uh, since my PhD is um, a new form of academic research, which is a very co-creation process. So instead of um, we, the academics or the researcher, as an external um, 
investigator going to a community and then you want to find out what they interested, what they need, and then you design or you propose something out of the research. But action research, um, I think it's very similar to design research, which I always refer to, is um, it's not about this top-down approach, but it's actually we set up this called the issue X. So something you and I, the community, all interested in. And then we um, investigate together. And then the outcome is aimed to have a, a meaning that's meaningful for everyone. So that's really um, uh, upside down uh, turnaround of traditional research in different disciplines. And so action research is a very new, since the 60s. So it's a very, uh, comparatively, it's very new and also requires the transformation, the highly reflected uh, researcher to take it on. And also traditionally they don't get much funding because the outcome is so unpredictable. Um, so people, I think if you talk to anyone in academic, the action research is almost like this wild kid or black sheep that someone are doing it, but it's not, it's still not classified as a proper uh, academic research. But what I find fascinating is re actually when you look at the article or the, the, the theory back up, this is very similar to design research, which is, um, is designer like put ourselves into the situation that we are part of the, the issues that we're happening in our city, in our community. Um, but what we do um, to, in, in order to drive people to come together as a co-creation, we design tools, objects, um, not for solving the problem, but actually uh, extending the conversation or uh, provoking new insights. So never people never have imagined the solution can be like that or something uh, to really push the discussion to a new level. So rather than like a few group of social like uh, audience like arguing for a topic, but everyone just do something together. Like we call it like body storming or actually a new form of like participation, people are actually doing things together. That's why they call it action research because the action driving the whole research process to one stage to other stage, but it's not fixed by the researcher. But it's actually the researcher is the, the initiator, the trigger to put everyone together and then draw in the actions. But the version one is maybe set up by the researcher, but then the continued action is is open for discussion, open for negotiation, is designed by everyone. Um, but then I think this is something how I would describe my work. So when did that kind of um, action research became a prominent part in your work and practice? Um, I think when I went to London, I have this concept that I really want to join the international community or even become part of this star architecture. And so for me, that was a dream come true coming to London after my degree. And, but then I think coming to London, not just went to the RCA, but I think in the city, in the international city, 
have made me rethink why I want to become a designer. Um, so I have a lot of rethink that, oh, actually I become a, I become a designer because I have a very trendy and very uh, uh, interesting grandparents who into fashion and I don't think they call that call that fashion at that time, but really interesting clothing, smoke very stylishly uh, from Shanghai. Um, so for me, I have this rethinking of who I am, why I'm here, why I want to become a designer. And then I met uh, Professor Roger Coleman at the RCA, which is the the people, the first people in the world talk about aging and design. And so through joining some of the program, I'm starting to find some of the answer. I'm questioning myself why I want to be a designer. Oh, because I really miss my the conversation with my grandparents. Um, so that's really drive me to rethink, do I really want to become just an architect or actually I want to have that creative conversation again? So um, that's how the whole thing turned around. So I stay at the RCA for 12 years. I work with uh, Professor Roger Common, who have been doing uh, design for social inclusion. So instead of like particular discipline of design, they are research center looking at design for social inclusion, but it's an ongoing question: How can we design for those being excluded by design? So Roger did it is starting from the nineties, and so he's starting with older people, and then also including people with disability as some project with children. But I think the most famous one is about aging, and that's how I started and. And I think the 12 years is really transforming uh, from this traditional design, what they call like product or discipline driven to purpose driven. So thinking about why designing it. And um, yeah, that's how the whole thing starts. You studied at RCA in London and then you came back to Hong Kong and the way I understand it is that you founded Enable Foundation, I think in 2017. And that mm. during that period, you started an, a, a series of projects that was funded by the government, I think it was by the uh, Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship Development Fund. Mm. Um, and you've done a few projects in that. So I don't think we have time to cover all of them, but the one, um, maybe starting from the sort of the latest, the most recent one, I think is the one in 2021 or 2020, about dementia. That was the project I think you were working on when I met you as well, or you were preparing to do that. Do you mind to talk about that particular project? I came back Hong Kong in uh, shortly after uh, Professor Roger Coleman retired, and and then I have the opportunities to went to Beijing for one year uh, on a fellowship. And for me, I stay in Beijing for one year in Tsinghua University, where I was a visiting scholar. And but what I actually did is I hang around with over six thousand retired professor, and they all living on campus as part of the commonest like plan when you teach there and then when you retire you stay on campus because you still can stay in the apartment that you were assigned to 
Um, so that was a very critical study um, because for me, uh, I think for a lot of people in Hong Kong, especially Asia generally, they have this problem-solving concept of design, which is design coming to help you to solve the problem. And then they always focus on the problem itself rather than I call the ingenuity of people, which is people own solution to their own life. And so that brought me to back to Asia. And so I stayed in Beijing. And what I did is, instead of like giving a solutions or a whole series of solutions, what is aging, I actually spent time going 8 a.m. to, to uh, doing exercise with the professor on oxygen, uh, experiment on breathing and like how to facing the sun and then absorbing sunlight. So it's really interesting of all these retired professor, which is they are all scientists by training and talk in Chinese context, or even some of them maybe, I think they can be world famous um, like scientists. And when they get old, and they become very interesting in their own body. So a lot of them are doing projects on their own bodies, like oxygen, sunlight, um, all this calculation. So what I did is I spent this whole year hang around with them and actually wrote a little book called The Ingenuity of Aging. So it's a problem solving of aging. I learned from them and then I like proposed over 10 different types of social innovation ideas. That was 2012, so 10 years ago. And they talk about uh, like uh, internet club with younger people, how can uh, learn to taking care of the oldest. So they are maybe in the 70s. A lot of them still have parents in their 90s. So they were talking about, would that be any courses for them to do that? And um, so they also talk about, uh, actually a lot of them talk about death, uh, worry about burial, uh, what would their legacy, so for me, I think that is a very important part of my development of this one year, actually articulate this concept of aging is not a burden, but actually is a creativity inspiration for all of us. Haven't all enough talk about aging. We are just mid middle age or even younger people that you never can be as smart as though being already aged in the society. Um, so this is totally a reverse thinking process of designers. Um, but then, like, like you say, this also can be artists like investigation, inquiry practice, which I not I haven't been to art, like traditional art school. So I don't know. But like many friends, artists, they do see how I talk about all this is very artistic approach rather than traditional design linear problem-solving approach. There was one thing that was highlighted called dementia jackets. There were a few outcomes from that process, right? What 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 is that dementia jacket? Yeah, so the dementia jacket was a collection that we collaborated with a very good friend of mine, a design, designer based in London, Pascal Anson. And we sit down to really think about uh, what lessons we have learned from our dementia project. And then we curated five jackets for the show in Eindhoven. Um, so I, as I say, we don't want to give a solution that this is what designer can do for dementia, but instead we create these five pieces, uh, demonstrate five possible uh, design ways of doing uh, 
addressing dementia. So we have uh, very traditional like problem solving. So we have two jackets, which is more like um, one is called the Doremi jacket, which is we and also even the problem solving jackets is not just me and Pascal thinking about how can we help the people with dementia, but we're actually translating uh, carers um, description to us. So one of them is called the Way Me Jacket, which is um, Pascal heard about a story people uh, having family members with dementia. And so they they really don't know how to help the family members because he can't put in the jacket as usual. So one of the, I think one of the family members come up with the idea is called the Way Me. So he basically, they basically sew the Way Me onto the jacket and then uh, told their family members who have dementia to actually follow the way we the sequence to actually remember it's like like a like a tools for helping them to just do a normal daily task which is just putting on a jacket but because of the dementia that they bring losing the ability to coordinate so we have the doremi jacket and we also have this diagram jacket which is a diagram uh, print on the jacket. We collect a lot of um, carers. They did a lot of things. So they will uh, actually sew a name onto the jacket. They will put uh, some special tab onto the jacket at the pocket inside. So that's quite subtle. But if the family member get lost because of dementia losing this ability to recognize places, so they can still be found at some point. So this is the two, I would say, traditional that dementia, like problem-solving jacket. But then we also have uh, one, a normal jacket, which is we're trying to provoke people like a normal jacket. Have you ever think about you never can put it on? But then there's another two, which is we really love. One is called uh, uh, this like really uh, dementia jacket, which is uh, it's not about human having dementia, but the jacket have dementia. So the jacket have really big button, can never fit in, there's free pockets like uh, three different like um, way of wearing it. So it's a very confusing jacket, but it's actually based on our observation that uh, if you have dementia, this is how you're going to see a jacket, a normal jacket like this. And then, but the final one is called uh, the more like the inclusive jacket, which is we think this is the future that if we can have a Isimiyaki Kondikazon jacket that everyone can wear, don't need to have two sleep or just like can be wear anywhere to upside down is fine. No one will question you. And this will be what we dream for more designer working with us to make the whole society breaking all the rules. I think what happened is you can't wear a jacket when you have dementia because there's some preset rules. So a jacket must be like this. This is how you're going to wear a jacket. But if, if the jacket itself is already being deconstructed in a different way, then jacket the basic concept is to keep keep you warm so then it doesn't need to be have a fixed design but this is what happening is when you're trying to correct someone we have dementia and that's the conflicts coming so it's a whole i would say the whole set was so much thinking put into it but it's at the end it's just like five blue jackets setting up in the middle of einhoven but that's what we were very Glad that we went to Eindhoven because I think the Dutch Design Week is a very good platform for this type of debate. But even though we have some visitor, the young designer was just like, "Oh, have you guys done any testing with people with dementia?" So we have been so 
frustrated because constantly traditional designers come to us, especially if they're doing social design, they care about the, the society. And, but if you ask that question, what we could, we've usually told them is, have you ever met anyone with dementia? You can't really do any testing with them because they're very different. Everyone has different form of dementia. So you can't just go and test this and say, I have done 1,000 dementia patients and then this will go to work and will never going to happen. So, but then the problem is, I think there's a lot of assumption when people doing all this up social design and they still have this concept of I'm the superhero, I'm going to come to save the world. And I think that is also a very big challenge of professionalism. So are we the one knowing enough or we know everything, we can save the world. And I think the co-creation start with, I don't believe we know everything or even we don't even know enough to actually design. So this is why we need to engage people, know the topic, know the situation better than us um, in order to design with us. Talk a little bit more about the collaboration between either family members or friends. How were they related? Actually, we are very carefully, we don't work with people with dementia because they are in a very unstable stage. And the problem about them is uh, even though you want to do research with them, they will, they're not very uh, consistent in terms of data. So that's why I think if you people keeps coming to us like why you don't test with people with dementia and just like you are treating them like uh, subject matters which is i don't think you can do that so what we instead of what we did is we so that's what we call design by people for people so designed by people in this case we work with um, the carers which have experience with their family member have dementia and through their observation and uh, we work with uh, occupational therapists have many, many experience of uh, suggesting how to take care of people with dementia. Uh, we work with nurses, people taking care of people with dementia. Uh, but then, for example, for the older people, um, we work directly with them. But then usually the one uh, like more capable, we don't work with like uh, really old and incapable older people so we that's why i went to beijing for the most creative older people in the world and i got a lot of comment from hong kong especially like social service they say but they don't need your help why are you going to talk to them and i just say this is exactly why i need to because they are the one teaching me what is aging um so this is what we call design by people we finding people who design by themselves, for themselves, especially people are very creative, very interesting, um, like a problem solver themselves. And then we, our role as a design researcher is we actually went to talk to them and help them to articulate their insights. Because people just say, I just do it because I need to. I need to take care of my mum, have dementia for 10 years. Um, but that's what I think people really appreciate what we did is we went to talk to them uh, very thoughtfully, really trying to download what they have done and putting their experience into ideas. And then we, based on their experience, we design objects 
And then the design uh, for people become that we design for those who never experienced dementia. So it's almost like we're carrying all this, ex, we call the ex-carer, which is some people, uh, we talk, most of them we talk to them, uh, the people we talk to is they have family members have dementia before and already passed away because they are not as stressful as those who are carers now. So we went to talk to a lot of ex-carers. Um, then they're very happy to share their experience, their stories. And they're even more happy that we actually translate their experience into something useful. Uh, can be uh, objects for sale or even uh, more empathy objects for young people to engage. Um, so this is how, how we see it. But Sometimes it's difficult because the topic itself, aging and, and dementia, is so so popular, I would just say. I think a lot of people came to me like, oh, is it, why are you doing it? Because it's so popular. It's hot topic, right? So I know <laughs> it's not hot topic. But I think aging is because of my grandparents and I always want to talk to someone which is really interesting and older. And then the dementia... I find it dementia, of course, if you have family member have dementia, it's not a good experience. But when you're actually seeing as a creative process, um, a lot of experience from dementia is really interesting. And I think it's almost like, we're always using like dementia is almost like you're going to Harry Potter's or Mary Poppins world and it's full of magic. And you see the world upside down. And then you, of course, that, a lot of movies or showing confusions that you are really lost in control of yourself. But at the same time, if you take it as a creative process, I think can be some interesting thing happening. So what were some of the surprising, let's say, outcomes or um, observations during that process? Um, so, for example, we always want to do so the jacket is one of the things that many people talk about but in the team we always thought about one of the very amazing um solution is called the black carpet concept which is a lot of carers is using that is someone with dementia they will have this wrong uh concept of space so when they see a black carpet they thought it's a hole and they will never go near it so for us, it's just that when you see someone like that, they will stand. Uh, what we heard is a lot of people actually will stand around the carpet and then they just look down thinking it's a black hole. Um, and as I always told my architecture friend, it's like, this is amazing. If you can design this room that's full of uh, black carpets, but actually is a hole and there's all this illusion coming into this room and it's so interesting. And, but that is, I think this is such an interesting case because it's workable on one side. So it's, it's been tested. It's actually told by carers, a lot of people using that tricks. Um, but at the same time, it's so tangible and like magical that you think this is so amazing. So we thought one day we're going to, we're trying to persuade maybe in some public space in Hong Kong, we can create a dementia garden. And people just like, why there's also black things around or, and actually, it's a it's a illusion of black holes, and you're going to fall in if you have dementia. You also arranged a, a dementia showroom. 
I guess that mm. include the jacket and the, the black carpet. What other products, items were there? So we did two versions, and every time, so basically it's an apartment um, with toilet, with kitchen, and also with the living room. Um, but inside, we haven't done the carpet tricks yet, but we hope one day we can do that. But the last version we did for the housing association in Hong Kong is um, a, a showroom a apartment with the jacket in the living room. So people can try on the jacket, which is you can never button and you can never fit in, but you still need to wear it. And then there is a, a corner of switch, which is like, like 50 to 70 of switch. And then you don't know which one you can turn on the light. And so for everything, and then there's upside down toilet, which is everything was upside down. And then there's a kitchen that uh, have a, a broom that can move by itself. And so it's, it sounds like a Harry Potter apartment. But what happened is uh, we expect people to go in and touching everything and try it all out. And then the comment always come back, oh, it's so weird so strange and then that when they read the description um for example the light that the the switch corner is about uh, difficulty in judgment so when someone have dementia they may see a corner full of switch that we only see one so they are confused or they don't know what is turn on mean so they're always confused so uh, for us just turning on the light is something so easy Mom, just go and turn on the light. And but we heard a lot of carers say that their older family members would just stand at the corner for ten minutes, don't know what to do. And so that was one thing. And then the the uh, cell moving broom is is actually we heard a lot of people say they have imagination. So for example, someone holding a broom or a hoover, but then they actually thought the hoover is moving, but then they can't move. So there was always have this, we heard a lot of story like this because it's the perception change between you and the objects. And then the upside down toilet is the same because um, same, similar to the black carpet concept is they, a lot of, uh, especially men, don't know why, but there's still a lot of discussion. Men will have this, sometimes have this problem when they have early state of dementia. They will saw the, the toilet have become a big, uh, big, black holes or they're upside down so they're really scared to go in but actually it's just a normal toilet it's the the one that they have 20 years so we make it upside down toilet just trying to visualize that vision or that description by excara so if you go into the dementia um, apartment or show flat it's look very sim look very simple and then we the design we use it black and white it's like a line drawing uh, out from a cartoon but that and i think like you say there's a lot of research going on and but our outcome is to engage people with never have experience of dementia um so, but for example, we, we did say, is it an interior design or is this an architecture project? We don't know. But for us, that is the best way to actually engage the public. Just looking at the um, images of that, that showroom, that was, in, was that in Hong Kong or have you been able to show that in other cities as well? 
Not yet. Uh, we only show twice, both in Hong Kong. Um, but we we have done. But I think the problem about a spatial project like this, we need a, a bigger commitment. So when the we did a project with the Center for Demand in Copenhagen, and they saw the showroom, uh, the video of the showroom, and they love it. And they have a real showroom in their center. But it's this uh, traditional, uh, a normal apartment with a lot of uh, digital technologies and bad to it. So it's a showroom for people with dementia or the, the families that can go to see, oh, I want maybe we need to buy a new clock for my father who have dementia. Um, so they have, they say that they want another version of the, the actual showroom, but then they don't have enough space. And also, uh, so what have we done with them is we did a mobile version. So we did a Mary Poppins, this a bicycle version. We did five set of tools um, for them to go out to community and set up in any uh, community center. So one of them is about set a table. So it's a whole uh, a bag full of things that people can set a table in any t on a table or in a room, and that was based on a quotation of a carers in, in Denmark. Um, he or she having problem one day that she set up a table at usual, but then there was like many forks, many plates, and she don't know how to actually coordinate it, but that she'd been doing it for 40 years. Um, so that was based on this quotation. We designed this crazy table settings tools that people can have. Maybe they can get a, um, a school drivers, uh, also a cone. Then they actually set up a table by all these objects. Then at the end, it's not really strange. But what they did with the community is they actually explained to them, this is if someone with dementia, they may perform like this, but this is normal. You, can, you should be joyful and embracing it. And so that was the conversation piece they really liked. And so also we did, um, we, have, we haven't did a jacket for that, but we did an apron, which is an apron that can be wear upside down. And everyone just laughed so much because we actually just uh, uh, modify existing apron, but become four sizes, you can actually wear it. And never, there's no right or wrong. And so everyone wearing it uh, upside down or overlapping it, and everyone just laughed so much. And then they started to say, oh, oh my God, this is dementia. Like, yes, because we don't know if you have dementia, one of the symptoms is coordination. And you forgot where is the where is the top, where is the bottom, where is the front, where is the back. And everyone's starting to internalize the whole concept rather than someone just told you the symptom because you don't understand it. And um, so I think that was a very good, um, I think a very good cultural exchange and we are still exploring uh, we can develop it further so for us we're very proud of we call this dementia things concept which is from quotation to symptom um, to actually design object we call the dementia things um, rather than problem and then symptom and then we try to solve it and I think it's a very different process instead of linear focus, but actually we widen it up and have discussion. Um, so that may be what you call the art practice. But for us, it's about impact. For us, it's about bringing, getting people to rethink rather than 
giving them a solution. The the other project, um, and, and if we go a little bit further back in time, I think that was in two seventeen, mm-hmm. is the Home Street Home project, um, mm-hmm. which I, I think is also really interesting because that that I think addresses a different social um, issue in Hong Kong again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, do you mind to talk about this a little bit more? What what the what the the project was about the Home Street Home. Yeah, the home sweet home is um, another like study. It's actually not the studies was not done by me. It's actually uh, a student of Sarah Wong and myself uh, in landscape architecture. And but as a co-creation, I think she started as her own project. She went to the uh, Sun Trebo, um did this uh, traditional uh, landscape architecture project, went to talk to the user, uh, did some interview, observation, and then she had a proposal for the final year project. But when I met her, we the final solution was just so normal and expected. But then when we saw her research, I think it was so interesting. She had done almost two years, uh, just constantly, like every week went down and wonder with all these people which the government or policy would call them the homeless people um, and then she went to talk to them and she like draw their home and understanding how they're actually building their home on the street level and so for me and Sarah we have very like um, confident with this student and at the end I employ her in the school as a research assistant. Um, but instead of she doing a project for me, we want her to continue this project. And then the result was the book. Um, so I think if you look at the the, the setting up, is she did the, all the hard work, but I think it was inspiring that she make all these um, like few notes about all these people that she met. And at the end, we I think we... We put it all together. There's 11 type of cell builder, and they build different type of homes on the street level. And um, but I think for me and Sarah, we always talk about this is just a case studies um, for this uh, political discussion of who are the homeless or they're actually building their own home. They're cell builder, but to choose to live on the street. So that is already a very fundamental argument that we, when we make the book and also uh, at the end we make the, the title is Home Street Home, the self-built community in Hong Kong. So you can see there's no homeless at all. And we don't mention the term because we don't believe they're homeless. And then then you can see, and there was we were also very happy and surprised that the book was so popular. And I think, there's a lot of projects like this in Hong Kong, like urban regeneration, but I don't think people really focusing on the the creativities of those being excluded in the society, so those being homeless. Um, so I think that may be more aligned to uh, the utopia studies or some of the more European concept. Um, so that is really new in Hong Kong and people... In urban study, they don't focus on that in Hong Kong because it's still very problem-solving stage. Um, but then, we, yeah, as I say, it was really popular. Many people email us. and The book is still selling. So um, uh, 
many people in Taiwan want it. And so I think that project is a very small study, uh, but I'm glad because it's go back to my origins of urban like city studies, but haven't done that much um, since we start Enable Foundation. So even though people ask me, is dementia related to the city? Yes, I think for me, I think the city is always my topic is what happening in the city and the urban or the people community is always my focus. But but people just want to in Hong Kong, they put people or different project into different uh, framework. So I become an aging uh, uh, design project. Uh, but for me, it's, they are all the same. I call it um, design with the others or as the others. So I think this is back to Roger Coleman talking about design for social inclusion, um, which is who is included, uh, who is excluded. So I think for me, the homeless people are being excluded for so long. Um, so we're giving them some power or emphasizing their creativity as a city um, contributors. The other projects and which I find, well, apart from the title, Fine Dying, I would almost pronounce that as Fine Dining, but th that, that's completely different. Fine Dying, which is also a sort of, I don't know to, how to call it, if it's ironic or not. Do you mind to describe a little bit more about the Fine Dying uh, project? <laughs> yeah, the Fine Dying. Um, I think all the projects, as I think the research part is, we call the investigation. And we use, we always go to map out what is existing practice. So, so actually fine dying is a response to policy. They already starting this type a uh, good death movement. So I don't know. Uh, I don't think in Hong Kong they started yet, but I think in Europe and um, they already start this, or I think America is starting about called it good death, which is more like end of life services. So it's a big, topic in medical research and because it's a, a big issues in a lot of urban uh, environment people need to go to hospital or okay, they're going to die at home so it's all this uh, modernist concept that in the village in the old time we all die at home but then now you separate from your home and the place you go to die which is hospital so in hong kong it's even more ridiculous if you die at home your property will going to drop because they don't like this type of concept. Someone have death in the property. So there's all this crazy concept. And that's why I think it's really good that the medical experts start that, which is they call the good death. And so, but then the problem about that for us, when we investigate the whole service model is good death is so judgmental. So you can either have a good death, good death or bad death. Death. But I understand where they come from because they want to make a better service. But for us, I think it's an ongoing discussion. So it's not a definite uh, definition. This is good and this is bad. So that's why we thought the fine dying is better for design research or artistic approach. So that's what we call fine dying. Um, but for us, it's an ongoing investigation. We just saw into it. Uh, we are looking at see what things we can do. But in Hong Kong, one of the outcomes we have 
um, done an object called the envelope, which is ironically we actually patent it. So it's a one-off paper ashes scatterer, which is this is why we can patent it because no one ever would thought we need to do that um, as an object because it's a very very small part of the process is when your family members or your loved one have been have passed away, died, and then in Hong Kong, 90, over 95% of people are cremated. And then you become a pot of ashes in this wound. And in Hong Kong, they have been doing um, this uh, green burial, they call it, which is like scattering ashes. But in Hong Kong, I think 60, no, 80% of people is still put into this, this um, building, which is, uh, they will just put it there sealed it and forever to stay there but the government is pushing this green barrier which is scattering ashes um but what we did is we 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 went to talk to a lot of families and we followed the the actual surface and then we found out there is a a, um, a pawn or what they call in design which is like the problem which is the actual interface for people to holding the ashes and actually scattering because if you see movies that's so romantic, people just use hand and do it. But actually in the real world, uh, especially in Hong Kong, a place which is so into hygiene that people are very scared about touching the ashes. So this is why in Hong Kong, they need the, the, this device. And then we redesign it. It's existing, that's one by the government and we redesign it. So it takes so long to actually drill into the topic and, until we find this this really paint point that we need to redesign it. So it's fascinating that every time we talk about this project, people are just like, oh my God, you are just so like, we searched deeply into the topic and then, yeah, we, we just thought we need to do that. Otherwise the whole system will not change because it's fixed. Um, but it's still, it's still quite a long way to, we actually can make any really real change, but we're happy that the envelope uh, we sell it back to the government, uh, 300 of them. They already use it all. Now we have every month, there will be some people see some media coverage and they would just email us. I'm having the ceremony in two months time. Can I have one? I buy it from you guys. So we, I think there's some empowerment going on, but it's a, such a taboo subject. People will never thought it until they really need to face it in a month time. So... But it's a very slow process, yeah. For this project, you also, I think, uh, published a book, right? Yes, that was the one that we, when we did in, in, the, in the design school, uh, we published a book, which is the fine dyeing study. So we actually did it since 2013. It's my first project when I come back to Hong Kong. As I say, I was so inspired by the professor in Tsinghua and they're all talking about burial. So, and, and I always have this question. People ask me like, is it, is it very difficult to talk to older people about death? And I just say, no, if you ever talk to anyone, but family member is different. But if you talk to someone interesting, like an older person, they will start to forget about it like quite early. And people are really, really into it, especially you're older and especially you have some experience of bad surface in burial. Um, so I, I think it, I think it's a, such an interesting topic, um, but 
in Hong Kong is the most difficult one. Um, yeah, even we have problem with Hazen that they don't want us to talk about this project when we're in the space in Hazen, in Hazen place. <laughs> so, well, Hazen, uh, especially in Causeway Bay, uh, there's also the the area that we, that we met. How do people talk about this? You, you, you've spoken with people that were older that were probably thinking about this. Are, are they very pragmatic? Are they really practical? Or how, what, what, how do they talk about death? Um, it's unexpectedly practical because it's all about money. And if you look at the press, uh, all talking about is how expensive are they? And they don't talk about emotions. They don't talk about mourning. They don't talk about legacy. And so all is about money and how much it costs and how much it weighs. And it's all pragmatic solution. And I think that is the problem because that makes the whole topic become so mundane that you don't need to think about it until you actually need to think about it. But when we talk to the older people who we call the dying person, um, they actually really open about it because they really want to know. And also they worry about they become a burden for the younger people if they pass away. Um, so, but then the younger people also found fascinating because they found this is such a cool subject. But the problem about is someone like us, which is we call the decision makers, and they are the one who are going to pay. They are the one who are going to make the decision which funeral hall they need to go and how much, how expensive the coffin will, will need to be paying. And so there is a lot of generation, cross-generation conflict there. Um, so I think it's not an easy topic to uh, just talk about, but if not, we don't talk about it, they become even more taboo. So I think for us is such an important topic, but we just haven't enough energy to push it more uh, until if we say an evil foundation is going to open a funeral care service, which is we're not going to do that. And until then, we not we just hold it on. I think we occasionally bring it back, say, see any development. But the dementia project, I think we have already done two rounds and there was so much possible uh, like comments that people want to do more. So I think for us is, of course, we really want to do the fine dying, and but then the fine dying we know is not easy. Um, we've been talking to many people and, yeah, and then every time you just come back with like, oh my God, this is so taboo in Hong Kong. Have you tried to do this overseas, like in the UK or somewhere else? Not yet, but uh, we, so for example, Taiwan, they really like the concept, but then uh, we show it to some, in, in some conference, some people love it. But then I think, I mean, they also say that it's a taboo subject in Chinese, generally in Chinese culture. So we haven't really do much, but we spoke to people in Europe and the problem is I don't think Europeans see that as a problem yet so they're not even thinking about cremation they're thinking about land burial so for them this is such a I think they just appreciate how much we have done but they don't see relevant to them yet before I ask the last question 
what are the things <laughs> that you are working on right now? I mean, we discussed sort of three projects that, that you did uh, over the last few years since 2014, I think. Um, what projects are you working on right now? We're having a new project just starting last month, which is a, a project called Objects Talk. Um, project Yee is about uh, empathic uh, ecologists for education. So it's a totally new project and it's about empathying the ecologists. So um, that's why we call Objects Talk because we are working with um, teenagers in Hong Kong and trying to get them to understand the bigger world. So they are going to go through a design thinking process to understand that human is not the only uh, things in the world. Um, there's so much non-human objects around us. Um, can we listen to them? Can we talk to them even? So in that empathic process, we're going to get uh, a lot of social, innova social innovation ideas for Hong Kong on new ecologist concepts. So a lot of people starting to ask, like, why are Neighbor Foundation doing ecologists? You've never done a project like that. But for me, conceptually, this is just um, another move because it's designed with or even as the others. So we are human beings and we want to design with non-human beings. And we're teaching Hong Kong teenagers to do that. Um, yeah, so when I did my one, uh, when I was 28, when I met Professor Roger Coleman, I worked with older people, which is over 60s or even 80s years old. Now I am moving on to human and non-human. Um, and, and then we also met really interesting funders. So this is funded by the Jockey Club, which is, for them, this is a very new concept but they are very interesting to explore in Hong Kong. So not many people have done that in Hong Kong. I think not even because there was very separate a group. They have recycling group in Hong Kong and then ecologist group in Hong Kong, but they don't work together. And then design thinking is not even in that remit. So we're putting all things together. Yeah. So we are working in some trouble again. Um, we are going to map our uh, objects archive or some triple. So what we're going to see, butterfly, lamppost, anything. So we're asking the teenagers to map out all the non-human objects from living things to non-living things, anything they want to talk about, and then they need to talk to them. The last question, right? Um, it's called The Last Supper. So the last question is, who would you inv invite and what would you eat? Uh, yeah, this is not an easy question. Um, I think the direct answer will be with, the love, with your loved one, with my loved one, and a normal dinner. Um, and I do, depends on what it means, Last Supper. Does it mean the world is going to end in an hour time? That's, that's what I would go, your loved one and normal dinner and then let the world end. But if you wanted this a fancy like concept, I would love to have a dinner with uh, Dr. Doolittle. You know, these doctors that talk to animals and would love to have him. 
um, to sit around and invite all the animals. But eating something plant-based with interesting interpretation of the animal world. So can a cow eating some plant-based meat, something really interesting, and then see how they feel about that. And I think that recently I've been really interested in all these non-human topic and so this is why i think dr dooley too will be my dream dinner partner thanks a lot for showing up today and showing me your uh, new brand new office it looks wonderful yeah we'll be yeah in touch and hopefully i can be back hong kong soon You can find more of Dr. Yankee Lee's work and research on her website, which is www.yankeelee.com. That's it for this episode of The Last Supper, and thank you for listening. Please consider to like and to follow my podcast. You can find more information on my website, www.oscarvenhuis.com, and also on my Instagram and Twitter feeds. 